We are live. Hey, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. Um, we're really excited. This is our first webinar of September that's in a series titled Back to School, Creating the School Year We Want to Live In. Um, and we're hoping if you're watching right now that you might take a moment to um, share out with your networks. So whether you want to tweet or Snapchat or Instagram or whatever your social media is of choice. Um, I'm Kim Jackson and I am an associate professor of composition and literacy at California State University Chico, which is way northern California, and I get to I'm so excited host um, the webinars this month because we have some amazing educators who will be joining us. Um, this month we're looking at <clears throat> how we design and create our classrooms that both curate a culture of kindness that are based on inquiry and curiosity, that help students see themselves as experts, and we'll end the month talking to educators who do a really nice job of maintaining some of their own professional curiosity, even when the school year gets really busy, which is very hard to do. Um, and I'm excited tonight we get to talk with Alicia McCauley and Robin Jack and Bettina Shea um, about how they foster community and this kindness in the classroom. They span all kinds of contexts that will be interesting. A um, couple of quick details. If you're watching live, I made a little cheat sheet. I hope you can see it. This is the hashtags that we're using on Twitter, which is, um, I want to do like the Justin Timberlake, you know, hashtag uh, connected learning, uh, B2S, standing for back to school. Um, and you can also use the question and answer feature that's actually in the video player. And we'll do our best to kind of keep track of questions and answer them. And the webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's um, Educator Innovator. Um, so yeah, so we're going to do some introductions. And I'm hoping, Alicia, maybe you'd kick us off, and then Bettina, and then Robin, if that works for y'all. Absolutely. Um, I'm Alicia McCauley. And I'm a first grade teacher in Northern California. And uh, in the summers, I spend my time in Uganda with my nonprofit organization, Vigilante Kindness. And we create educational opportunities for kids who are in third world countries. Hi, I'm Bettina Shea. And I am an assistant professor at Cal State Long Beach currently. And before that, I spent 10 years in the middle school classroom and also um, a couple of years co-directing the Bay Area Writing Project. Hi everyone, I'm Robin Jack. I'm an English teacher in Northern California at Foothill High School. I'm the district chair for that English department and I'm also a doctoral student right now at UC Davis and also a teacher consultant for the Northern California Writing Project. So, you know, none of you are very busy at all. I'm <laughs> really grateful we all get to hang out together. Um, we thought that maybe we'd start by thinking through why you would even go to the trouble of creating um, classroom community or this kind of culture of kindness. And um, we were talking pre-broadcast you know, broadcast here with Alicia that, you know, for someone who's in elementary school, that's even, why would you, you know, of course you would need to do that with small kids. Um, but I'm not sure that's always true in college, which is why I hang out with elementary school teachers, because I learn the most from them. Um, because, you know, if you think of students as being talked to, why would they need to create a community? Um, and so I thought maybe we could all talk through, anyone could start, just what do you think, like, what do you think advise you to, to do that labor? Because it is work to, to do this, and we can talk about how. Anybody can jump in. 
I can start with this. Um, you know, I devote the whole first week rather than just the first day to not the rules, not the syllabus, and not um, structures that I'm going to impose on my classroom. But I feel like as an English teacher especially, we're going to do a lot of writing and a lot of reading, a lot of talking with each other. And I feel like it's really important right in the beginning to develop a level of trust. And to do that, I think we have to be seen as real people. And we have to trust that the people we're writing with and talking with and sharing with see us as real people. I think that we need to find a few things in common, obviously. But really, I work hard in that first week and beyond to do a ton of personal writing so that my students hear their voices, not just mine. I don't do a lot of talking besides facilitation in, you know, in, the, in the first week. My students find it really bizarre, but they tend to really quickly learn that the classroom that we share, we're all colleagues and we have sort of an equal um, amount of talk time if possible. So rather than impose myself as the leader of the group, I really engender a level of trust and personal stories being shared in order to, to build that trust over the first week. I think it, it lends me, I do that work because eventually they keep talking and, <laughs> and then I, you know, I don't have to lead everything all the time. It's not crickets when I'm not talking. They really feel a sense of agency, I think. And they understand that we co-create this space together. It takes a little bit of work in the beginning to get them to open up. But once, once I do, they feel like they have an equal say in what our class is. I can go next. Um, I think that I can build off a lot of what Robin said. I, when I taught middle school, I actually had a very similar philosophy and really wanted to promote um, a, a culture that had students feel willing to share. because. When I went back to the classroom, I took a few years off to do my PhD and then went back and I noticed that my students were just waiting for me to give them the answer. Right? So if I put a writing prompt on the board, it wasn't like they would start writing right away. They would just sit there because they were worried about getting the wrong answer. And I really want to create a space where students feel like they are free to take risks. And I think that now in my role as a teacher educator, that's even more important because um, so my research is on professional identity and one of the things that really shapes how we see ourselves as teachers are our past experiences. And sometimes teachers don't have models of interactive classrooms. They don't have models of spaces where a community is created. And so I think it's really important that they learn in pre-service teacher education by actually um, being part of a community of learners. So we, um, I, you know, always spend my first couple of weeks really building that community and I even start before we only meet once a week so I have to use my time effectively so even before the class starts there are your name and your content area but also what inspires you about teaching or what's the last thing that you read so that you can actually get a sense of who's in the class and we always spend our first class even before again like Robin said even before we jump into the syllabus we start with who's in the room. And it really creates that environment where people are willing to share with each other, particularly since they have to do things like share their literacy histories or um, share who they are as teachers. I mean, those are really vulnerable things. And I don't think you can jump into that without um, creating the space for them to feel safe and, and becoming members of the community. 
So sort of piggybacking off of what both of you said, which is always interesting to me that um, what I do in first grade is so similar to what you do in upper grades, but one of the things that we spend the first week doing is, um, and this is with six-year-olds, people can't believe that we that I do this with six-year-olds, but um, we do a lot of get-to-know-you things because my room is, is like their second home. They're still little, you know, and uh, so one of the things we do is with my six-year-olds, we write a social contract. So they brainstorm as a class together what it is that they want our classroom to be like and what what things we can agree upon in our classroom. Um, and I I shudder when people say, I don't go over the rules. I'm like, wait a minute, why would you why would you have rules? Like why why isn't it more often um, a conversation between your students and yourself as one participating member of the classroom? And I think that's really the big thing that helps in, in my classroom, helps us become a community, because the first thing we're doing together is creating this document together that we all agree to and that we all think will make our space um, a happy learning space, a happy place to be together. God, it's amazing how, um, yeah, how similar. I'm, I'm really struck by, and I love the creation together because, oh, duh, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't actually do that, but I'm going to now. <laughs> but Alicia, I'm really curious now, it makes me curious, what kinds of things do, the, do your students come up with when you ask them to create um, some shared, and then Robin, I'd have you weigh in on okay. the same thing. Like, and Bettina, I just saw your students sweeten out all that, so we'll talk about that in a bit, but like, what kinds of things do they come up with? Um, the things that were important to them this year, they had eight things, and I'm thinking of the the three that were most important to them, they even decided the order that they wanted them on our, we have a poster in our classroom that's our agreements that we've all signed, and um, the first one is be kind. They, they want people to be kind, and they want to be kind, yeah. Um, another one that was really important to them, and, and I kept telling them, uh, do, doesn't this go with kindness? Couldn't we just lump this all together? Um, it was really important for them to use manners, use their polite manners. And I kept saying, oh, that's being kind. And they're like, it's not. It's different. And so we have a different one that says, you know, use your manners. And um, another one is uh, listen attentively no matter who is speaking. So, and uh, it's funny. People say, oh, you know, you must have come up with that. No, I just, I listen to my students. And some people think, oh, they're six. But they're six, and they have great things to say. One of the norms in my classroom is that students produce a lot of personal writing and that they are expected to share that writing. So we talk right away about what would make that a safe space for them to do so. I use a couple of pieces almost every year that I have them use as structural models. So I use Jamaica Kincaid's piece, um, Girl, and I use Dave Eggers' piece, The Accident. And we write some personal um, pieces modeled off of those so they get to choose whatever topic they want. You know, I have kids writing about the enculturation of how to how you know you can become a band kid at high school and so forth. You know, what it what it's like, the most recent one I read, what it's like to be known as the party guy and how tired that can make you. And and it's sort of soul crushing. You know, these are really deep pieces. And so what we do in the beginning, I model for them what it's like to be a good listener. And I also write with them new pieces every year. And if they want me to, I'll share some of mine first. 
And I always make sure that mine are real and that mine are authentic. And when Alicia was talking, and Bettina too, I, I remembered I wanted to say that it's the most profound relief as an educator to finally let go of the notion that I have all the answers and that I'm responsible for provi providing all of them. Because for I think for a lot of years as a teacher, when I operated that way, I was really lonely up there at the front. And when I realized that it didn't have to be that way, it was, like I said, it was the most profound relief to realize that I was in a room full of colleagues and that we all made meaning together and we created this space together. It's going to be that way anyway. It's just whether or not you recognize it, I think, as a teacher. And whether or not you get to be a part of the thing that the students are a part of. Because sometimes I, I think I've created a space where I got left out. Yeah, it's really interesting that Robin says that because it really st stood out to me, this idea of the identity of our students, like finding out who's really in the room. And that actually makes my job a lot easier, too, because I feel like, oh, I'm not walking into this group of people that I'm afraid are going to judge me because I actually know that, you know, so-and-so likes this or this person, you know, um, is an, was an English language learner growing up and so they can really identify with these issues or... Um, this person had a really negative experience with literacy, so they're still insecure to this day, but they know they have to use it in their classroom. And so it really helps me to get that perspective of who's in the room and really helps me to support my students in a better and more clear way. And then, you know, the other thing that Robin said that I just really wanted to pick up on was this idea of, you know, we get to be a part of that community, um, which is really such a privilege. Um, I'm always just so moved by who my students are, um, whether it's me reading their literacy autobiographies or who they are as teachers or the insights they share in the classroom. I'm just so moved that I get to be a part of their community and to see what they create. And it's funny because in both my classes, this is the part of the, the semester that we're in is creating classroom community. Um, and it's so interesting because one of my students last night was saying, well, you know, when we were sharing our literacy autobiographies in small groups, you know, it was really good to hear that some of my other colleagues had similar struggles to what I had because, you know, you come into the credential program and you think that everybody knows everything and you're the only one who has any insecurities. And he's like, it's really different when the professor's like, oh, yeah, I struggled with literacy too. Because you're like, oh, she's just saying that to make me feel better. But when your colleagues are actually saying it, then you feel like, oh, okay, like I, I do actually legitimately belong here. And that goes a long way because I hope that they leave my classroom and are lifelong collaborators, right? That they go on to staffs of their own and work with their colleagues in this way. And they're not going to get that experience um, or they're not necessarily going to know what that experience is like, like without having the opportunity um, to experience that in a classroom. You know, I'm also struck by um, it's some it, at the college level too. It's um, I, a lot of students tell me they can get through their day or their week without people knowing their names, um, and and I think the kindness. I know Alicia's like what? I think the kindness part um, and the community. You have to know their names, and they have to know each other's names. And and what I often will say in the first week. I, I think Robin's right. It's it's over this time is um, it's just a lot, it's a very different space to be in a classroom where someone says, you know, as Ro like Robin was saying, like that's a really interesting point. As a, 
as opposed to like, you know what she was saying or that girl, you know, that where you could tell they don't really know. It's a very different space. And, you know, even if it's a class of 100, I think you have to work really hard. And I think there's a lot of ways you can do it to, to know their name and, and then beyond, right? And then know, you know, who is a great animator and who, you know, you have to know a lot about your students. And I don't think even at the college level, I think if you, especially when you're teaching writing and you're asking them to do take these risks, um, it's really strange if you also don't know their name. So I, I think that, and I, and I have to say, I'm not a fan of like goofy, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't mean to be blasphemous, but I'm not a fan of goofy games to do it. Like, I don't want to take three M&Ms, and I don't want to pass the yarn around. I just want to, gr like, a grown-up learning race <laughs> And I know people do cool stuff. I just can't. I'm enough of an introvert that it flips me out a little bit to do that stuff. Um, you know, so I, I thought maybe it would be really good. One of the things I'd like to do throughout this series is really talk about day one. You guys have already talked about pre. I don't think particularly new teachers understand how much labor goes in pre-classroom space, designing the space, the things you know about students before they walk in the door. I'm memorizing rosters, stuff like that. Um, I thought, Robin, maybe you could kick us off because I, um, I know you think really carefully about how that space is configured and then everybody can kind of chime in. Like, what's your classroom look like that helps with the community side of it? Sure. So I demolished the front of the room and um, because it became a little bit bizarre to me that I'm one person in a classroom, usually of even 35, 38 students, and I control more space than any other one person in the room. And I just thought, you know, if I, if I got underneath to what that meant, sort of theoretically, I didn't, it didn't sit well with me. So if I wanted them to be equal co-constructors of what we're doing and all of our learning, so I moved um, all the desks out. I, we have tables that seat four to six, and students sit facing all different directions in the classroom. There, it's easy to turn and look at you know, the computer screen that's projected on the wall when, when we need to. And I'm not the only one who controls that either. But Typically, I wander around, they wander around, and we sit in different configurations based on what activity we're doing at the time. So if, uh, if we would like a little more input on a conversation about, for instance, a piece of writing, then we might sit in larger groups of, let's say, eight. Um, just yesterday, we moved all the tables to the middle, and we sat in a huge you know, circle because they said they really needed to sit and conference, and they wanted to see everyone's face because they felt like they weren't getting enough input from, you know, from everyone. They wanted to hear new voices. And so I walk around, I don't lecture, and I think that's sort of a, a really important point is that, and I, I was guilty of this, I think, in the early phases of my group work. I put everybody into groups, but the activities were kind of the same. So it functioned just like as if we were in desks in rows because I hadn't evolved quite enough to, to really, um, I guess, reconfigure my role and re-understand my role. But on, on day one, for instance, students walk in, they get to sit wherever they want, and they're social beings just like I am, so we're all introducing ourselves as we sit down. They want to know where I go because they can't figure out where the front is. And so that um, tension right away gets them thinking and questioning what this class is going to be like, which I think is awesome because they get to say a large part of that. And before we do anything else, we sit down and we write. And I tell them right up front that it's part of this at least. They get to pick which parts are going to be a public piece of writing just so they know where to aim 
with what they're saying, and then we do some writing and we share it right away. So immediately on day one, everybody has some talk time, um, maybe not in front of the entire class, but at least in front of about six or eight people. And I think co-constructing what the class is depends on people looking at other faces besides mine the entire time. And I also think that when they sit looking at each other, they feel uncomfortable waiting for me to provide those answers because they're staring at somebody else. So typically they, they jump in and have a great conversation just because of the configuration and then I think the safety that we build over time. You know, I just want to, before um, someone jumps in, I just want to really highlight like this really important thing that you narrated, which is you do the things that matter in your class the beginning of your class. Like if you want students to talk and you want students to write and you want students to share, you ought to do that on day one. Like they ought to know from day one, right, that these are the things that matter and so we're going to do them. Yeah. And I, I think I get a really important added bonus. I, and this maybe wasn't something I, I did on purpose or expected, but because I model right from the minute we meet, how interested, interested I am in their thinking processes, they I didn't really mean to model it, it was just sort of genuine, but they took it as a model for talking then and focusing on their own learning processes. So I got this huge metacognitive aspect that really surprised me in the beginning of, of doing class this way. I thought it was wonderful. So it's interesting that you talk about the configuration of your classroom, like not having a front and kids sitting in groups together, because that's that's elementary school, that's, that's primary, at least it's my classroom, but um, I wanted to go back to what you were asking, Kim, about like um, what do you do on day one and things. For me, um, a big part of setting up a classroom culture of kindness is um, making sure the families of my students feel really welcome and um, because, you know, it's, I'm taking their babies. I'm, I'm going to be with their babies six hours a day. And um, that starts on my classroom website, and I have a page that's all about me, and they get to learn about me, and they get to learn about my sons in Africa, and um, that kind of thing. And I can't tell you how many parents have said that that's such a relief to know a little bit about me and to be able to share with their with their little ones, you know, who's this teacher and and what's she about. And then the day before school, um, we have a first grade meet and greet where the kids come; they just get to see the room and um, meet me and um, it's and the families come and it's it makes the first day so much easier they're so settled they they know where they're going they know that a friendly face is going to be there with a hug and um, and then the other the other part of my classroom configuration that is really important and I can't stress this to new teachers enough every time I have the pleasure of working with new teachers I always tell them your group space has to be the priority um, you know, you have to you have to create with little ones. You have to create a space where we are all together, and we're doing this. And my group space takes up so much of my classroom because I want them to know that who we are as a group is so important. It's um it's a really common thing in Uganda to hear kids say, "I am because we are," and um that's I really try to make that true in my classroom too. That that we're this team together, and we're going to be this team for only 180 precious days. Love that. Love that. Hey, Bettina, as you chime in about the things you think about with the um, 
with the, you know, structuring even pre-class or that day. Can you kind of tie into the things that you do? I know that you've got your students jumping in on Twitter. Like, you use social media. You and I both do that. But you do it, I mean, you get, you have cool stuff really fast. Like. <laughs> um, yeah, I can talk about that. So I actually use uh, the learning management system that we have at Cal State Long Beach. It's called Beachboard to set up that community, like I said beforehand. I don't have as much control over my space as Alicia and Robin do um, because I'm just put in a classroom. But I've been really lucky that when I'm on campus, I'm in the active learning classrooms. I've made a special request to be there. So I have students writing on desks um, because we have whiteboard tables. So I have students writing on desks. I have them collaborating with each other um, from day one because one of the things that I think is really important is I tell them that the objective of the first course is for them to get the sense of the course so they can choose their participation. Because I really want students who are going to be there. And I expect a lot from them and I want them to know what the class is about. So they're going to be talking with their colleagues on the first day. And they're going to be writing and they're going to be reflecting and they're going to be thinking about who they are. And it's going to push them in ways that they hadn't thought about before. So I set that tone really early as well. Um, but going back to what you asked about, Kim, in terms of how I use technology. So before the first day, um, as I mentioned, I have them do these introductions. I have them respond to two of their colleagues. So walking in the room, they already know two people's stories, right? And then when they get in the room, you know, sometimes they know each other from other classes, but sometimes they're like, oh, I read your such and such. Um, and so they, they can already start that conversation then, and then we do some partner activities, et cetera. Um, but I, I require Twitter in all of my classes. And it works much better in my on-campus classes because I'm blocked when I'm here at the high school. Um, but I still tweet about what we do, and I still require it. Require it. And um, Twitter's been a great tool because we have a class hashtag. And um, last semester was fantastic. I had students live tweeting our class. so. You know, I would see what they were taking from lecture. I could respond to them. If they had questions and I was in the middle of saying something or we were in the middle of a share, they could tweet their questions and I could get back to them during the next pair share. Um, I, You know, it's funny. Robin mentioned she changed the configuration of her classroom and then she kept her activities initially kind of similar because it's like, well, how do you work with this new configuration? And I had the same thing with the active learning classroom and with using Twitter. I was like, how do I use this effectively? But you know, this semester, um, I've had them start taking pictures of their Venn diagram introductions of each other, right? So, um, so they can associate people with each other so they can get practice using Twitter. They can tweet their exit slips. Um, they tweet responses to each other. And, and they have to follow each other, too. So then some of them are retweeting each other. And it's just a really neat way for us to stay connected throughout the week. Because unlike um, Robin and Alicia, I only get to see my students once a week. And I only see them 15 times if I'm lucky during the semester. So we've got to do community building on speed really quick um, because there's also a lot of content to cover. So I really like using social media, particularly because they're adults, because it keeps us connected throughout the week. And I actually had a student today say, Professor Shea, you are so fast, like, with Twitter. Like, I tweet you a question, and then, like, two minutes later, you, like, ask me a, you, like, answer my question. And I'm like, yeah, I just have no life. So. It's true, right? It's true. It's, uh, they get to you faster from direct message on Twitter than email. 
sometimes. Um, yeah. Uh, I was thinking about, as you all were talking, how much I scour this campus of Chico State. And our campus has been very responsive to looking for classrooms that are set up for learning and not for teaching. Um, so they're not lecture halls or whatever. And we've had some success in developing some classrooms where the chairs roll, where you can reconfigure the space really quickly. And it's interesting, I'm in uh, two of my class. I have four classes. Two of them are in this more configurable space right now. Round tables, they all sit around. And to not talk to each other would be rude. Like you're sitting across from another human being. You'd have to decide I'm going to be rude right now. And then the other space I'm in is these rows, these, and it like as we're trying to you know move the desks around. It's terrible, and it, there's just no way around it. It, in fact, that room actually even has a stage that the faculty person is supposed to stand on, which I refuse, obviously, to do. Um, and and so I feel like you know we have responsibility on our at our schools and our campuses to also be like these are the I need to be able to move in and out of small, big, you know, reconfigure. Um, the space, but I will pick a room over the time I'm teaching twice on Sundays. You know what I mean? I would much rather have the space I want than the time I want. Like, eh, that's not the thing. Um, and Bettina, I'm really struck, of course, by, um, I think you and I, I, I'm interested in the use of social media in building community because I want to think about lots of ways that students can find a way to participate. So not everyone's comfortable talking in class, especially a large class, but maybe they can tweet, or maybe they'll blog, or maybe they'll be a great responder on Google Docs, or maybe they'll be the one who talks in class, or they'll take the lead. But they, it takes all of us, is what I want them to know, to make the classroom functioning. So you don't have to do all those things. Just find the thing that kind of works for you. And if you are a lead tweeter, um, awesome. And I also like how you can put it up on the front of the room. I have three big screens in one of my rooms, and the Twitter feed is constantly going, so you everyone can be heard, and you can point like, oh, can you tell me more about what you guys are talking about? So it's a good way to capture, you know, a big space and have everyone be heard, which also helps them feel a part of that community. I'll come back. So um, let's let's think about like how we maintain it once you've got some kind of community. Let's, let's say we can even hit the, like, you know, we all know it, it's not tidy. So, like, yay, we're all best friends now. Um, assignments can throw it off, all kinds of things. So let's think about, like, how, what, what goes on throughout the school year for you all that kind of maintains that. Assignments, activities, spaces. Um, I, so I want to talk a little bit about um, my closing class meeting, which happens every day. Um, I use Class Dojo in my classroom, and, and kids can earn points. Like It's like a gaming thing a little bit. They can earn points for when they're, when they're doing the things that we've agreed to on our social contract, essentially. Um, they can earn negative points when they're choosing not to do those things. But at the end of the day, we have a class meeting every day in our shared space. Like We all come together as a group. Um, we sing some songs because we're first grade, and we sing, and that's what we do. And then at the end of the day, um, the kids report each other and all the things that they've caught each other doing well that day. And it's like a, it's like a secret that they keep all day long. You know, like who did they catch? What were they doing? Why, why are they earning Class Dojo points, you know? And um, I didn't, when I started doing this, I just wanted them to be connecting with each other more and really looking for the good things that kids are 
you know, that the kids are doing, that, that they find each other doing. But an interesting thing happened. Tattling stopped, which if you are around six-year-olds, you know that tattling is like a real thing, <laughs> you know. And uh, they started they started catching each other being good and catching each other being kind, and um, the tattling just went away. It was kind of like this miraculous thing. And uh, yesterday, it was so sweet. One of my little boys, uh, his grandmother passed away suddenly about six months ago, and he talks about it every day. He's just brokenhearted. He was so close to her. And I was doing a book talk yesterday. And um, I didn't realize one of the books I had was a book his grandmother used to read to him every day. And uh, I did a book talk, and then I handed it to another kid. And the kid whose grandmother passed away was so upset about it. And so I got to talk to him a little bit about it. And he said, can I read that book when that kid's done? And my grandmother used to read it to me. And I said, sure. And so I talked to the other kid who has the book. And you know, he says, of course you can read it when I'm done. No problem. And the little kid who had the book took it over to the little boy whose grandmother had passed away. And the little boy could not remember the words. He could, and he's not a reader yet. He knew the pictures. And the other little boy said, I'll sit down and read it to you. And they, I know. I know. I can't even, I can't even go there. And uh, at the end of the day, the little boy whose grandmother passed away, that was what he reported about the little boy that not only did he share the book, which is part of our social contract, but he went above and beyond and made sure that this little boy got to hear the story that was important to him. And it's because of those daily meetings that we're having where we're catching each other being kind. And it's not just me looking for them being kind and doing the right thing. They're looking for it in each other every single day. I love that story, Alicia. Seriously, don't make me cry on this webinar, please. But I, it leads to something that I wanted to say, too, is that when you start these kinds of processes where students feel completely invested in what you're building in that classroom, and they know that they're essential to the way it functions, you don't really have to maintain it as a teacher. At least that's been my experience, because they want, they'll do anything to protect the, the safety and, and everything. I mean, they built it, so they want to protect it because they're completely invested in it functioning well. So Robin, can you say a little more about how do you, how, what do you, this is a hard thing I think for, for particularly new teachers, to get like how you can tell, like what the signs are, you know, and obviously Alicia's got a very obvious, you know, there, there's a sign <laughs> that there's a caring moment going on in your class. Um, what are the, what are the kind of moments where you're like, okay, there it is. When, when students are reading their work and you can hear a collective gasp, of awe or shared laughter when they're done. They're, I've never had, after I've modeled what it feels like to get um, praise after you take that risk of reading publicly, especially something personal, then they, they take over. And so now they have me modeling what, and, and them feeling how much they loved getting those kudos. So then they want to give it to other people. Also, um, I think it's really important that I treat them with respect in terms of always having something that's challenging. I don't, I don't mean to say that we always write personal pieces or that everything's really easy or there are not rules. My comments on their papers, their comments on each other's papers modeled after mine, they, um, 
it's challenging. They have a lot of revision to do. They have a lot of tough work to do. But we talk in the early days especially about how that's a sign of respect. That if you don't ask much of a student or a teacher, then that's because you probably think they can't do it. And so we build this culture early on that colleagues ask the hard questions out of respect because they know and they trust that that person has what it takes to respond. And so um, I, I don't know. I, my, my kids are teenagers. Some of them are 18, so they're legal adults. And honestly, I've never had a year where I had a problem with rudeness just because they sort of hold each other accountable too. They're, they're face to face, two feet away from each other. Like you said earlier, they're going to have to really decide to be rude. And I, I, don't, I don't see it really any of that in, in students. I think maybe because they help build the structures and they feel a, a huge sense of ownership in my classroom. Yeah, I love that. Um, we got a question um, from Twitter that I think any of us could answer. Um, Bettina, you can can kick us off, but um, some people asking, like, do we build in policies about using technology in the classroom when we're setting up, you know, and, and that can happen in a college classroom, right? Like, are there um, rules? And I, I bet I, I'll bet I do it a lot like the, all of us. I bet we have something in common, which is the students create those norms um, about the use and, you know, I think of a tool, like this is a tool, my glasses are a tool, I don't think of technology as just digital, um, so I'm probably a little bit of an outlier for other faculty. But the students create norms around their use, it's not a special treat, we need all the, <laughs> we need all the things available to us. But I also feel a responsibility, I have to say, to, especially I work a lot with future teachers, to help them create a professional digital identity. And so we talk about that and maybe the affordance of separate accounts and private and public and what do you find when you search your I mean, I think it's more of a conversation than, um, than a kind of a contractual relationship. I think it's more of a conversation about why we're using it, what function it serves, returning to that. So Tina, do you want to say a little bit about how you work with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's partially all about trust, right? And it goes back to your original question, Kim, about why do we go through the trouble to create a community of learners, right? So when we're really creating a community of learners and a community of kindness and a community of mutual respect, um, then we have to assume positive intent and professionalism, right, at whatever level. And so, I mean, and, and I do tell my students, it's different. Um, I don't, I didn't use social media in the same way um, when I was teaching in a middle school classroom, just because the norms of accountability were different, right? But as in dealing with future professionals, I really, um, it, it's kind of like what Robin was saying. I really hold them to a high standard, and I, I hope they hold themselves to a high standard. I mean, this is their one time to be really intensely trained and, and get this like professional development that they need. And I really hope that they use the social media responsibly. Does that mean that I've never had a student on Facebook, which I don't use uh, for class stuff, um, during class? No, it doesn't. And I mean, and I've had students tell me, you know, I mean, because my students tattle, unlike Alicia's. Um, so I've had students tell me, you know, so-and-so was on Facebook. But, you know, if that's what they feel like they want to take away from my class, I, I feel a little sad, but I also, you know, hope that they're taking other things away from my class and that they're participating in their own way. I mean, I think, I just, 
part of being part of a community is assuming positive intent and not, you know, I mean, it's just like I tell people, if you have an emergency phone call, go take it in the hall. Because I don't know what's going on with my students. And I, I think part of this whole community of kindness is me not assuming that I do know. And assuming that just because they might be on social media that I didn't sanction, that they're doing something disrespectful to me. Because maybe they really want to be in the class, but they need to be on social media because they need to handle something in their personal lives. I don't know. and so. My personal policy is to trust my students and to build in a class that's worth them being there, right? I, I really want them to feel like they they want to be there and that, you know, and they have to do so much sharing with each other in partners anyways. They can't miss out on that much of the conversation because, you know, they, like Robin was saying, you know, you're two feet away from somebody. Somebody's expecting you to share with them. Like, you should know what you're talking about. So. That's kind of my de facto policy on social media. I, I really think it's important to, to, to piggyback on that. My classroom management policies really are centered down in my curriculum. So rather than focusing too much on managing bodies or managing where a phone is, I'm going to make sure that my curriculum doesn't lag, it moves swiftly, and it's important to all of us. And, and if I feel, I mean, there's always times when I realize I'm, I planned it wrong or, or it fell short somehow so and they're not too invested. Well, that's a clue for me that I need to look at my curriculum, what our, what our classroom plan is, and make some changes so that I can pull them back in. I mean, that said, I'm a high school English teacher. I take a phone every now and then. I do. I give it back later. If it seems like it's a distraction, it's just like, you know, if you brought in balloons or snow cones or something, it was a huge distraction. I guess we'd deal with it. But really, I focus more on, on my curriculum and making it move swiftly so that they don't have time to wonder about what's going on on Facebook. But I, I really don't ever want to take their phone because we need it. It's my tool. It's their tool. We have questions all the time about an author or what he's done before. Today we looked up an author who had written a piece, and we wanted to know, you know, about his background and if we trusted him as an authority. So immediately all the phones were out, and we had to look him up. And then we realized that no, we don't trust him as an authority. So that was really good to know. <laughs> I love that. You know, we haven't even talked about, um, and I know. Um, I think Alicia, you do this. Like, um, we haven't even talked about how the other way that we create community is. I work really hard to connect them to communities outside of the classroom, like so that they understand that they're part of a larger community. So one of the affordances of, say, even social media is, gosh, we often have um, authors retweet us. We had Dave Lubar, who writes the Weenie series, email students because he saw their blog post and. You know, they, they're they so invested when they know that someone else, you know, is listening to their ideas. Um, and so there's another affordance of why we would go to this labor. Is, um, Alicia, can you say a little bit about, like, six-year-olds, six how are they connected outside uh, with other communities? Um, well, honestly, the, the biggest audience for six-year-olds goes back to their families. Um, and our, our website plays a big part of that. They know that the work that they're doing is going to be if we put it into a digital story or something, it's going to go to their families. And um, I, I can't tell you what it means to them to know that we're making something that's going to be seen by their moms and their dads and their grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters. Um, and 
The other thing that, um, I, and I don't mean to be a class dojo like lover, but it really works for, for my classroom. And one of the things that's great about it is um, you can send you can send a message. Um, you know, you can send a message like a picture, sort of like a text, but it's within the community. I can send it directly to their parents. And um, so all the time they're coming up to me, Mrs. McCauley, can you, can you show this to me? Um, you know, can you show this, I mean, can you show this to my family? Can you take a picture of this? And so for, for us, um, like you said, technology is a tool, and those tools let me connect them to their families when they're away from their families, and, and that's, the, that's the biggest thing. That's, that's our biggest audience, I think. That's really cool. Yay, and Robin's back, too. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. You know, I, um, we did some, I got to do some really cool work with uh, Wendy Ferrone, who's a teacher at Chico Country Day, who's amazing, just like y'all. And um, all the students at their school have Twitter accounts through their school. And so we blogged with the seventh graders about books, my college students, virtual teachers, and those seventh graders about books, which was already amazing. And then we did a Twitter chat, um, like a title talk, you know, where we just talked about books on Twitter with these. It was amazing. And they were, I mean, of course, one of the reasons I want to do this is because seventh graders blew us away, right? They're so capable. And so the ideas they had about books, and they read way more books than we did. Um, there was all that going on. But I liked that um, it reminded all of us, like particularly for future teachers, it made the community very material and real. Like you're not planning to work with these kids later. We're going to work with them right now so you can see what they're capable of. And um, while it's a lot of labor, I, I, I was well worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I actually ask my students to connect with um, professional learning networks through Twitter, and that's actually one of the main reasons that I integrate Twitter into the classroom, because I really want them to start seeing themselves as teachers, right? So they're one or two semesters out from student teaching, and I want them to understand that, you know, they don't know where they're going to be in terms of a site. They don't know if they're going to be a one-person department. So how does my music teacher or my foreign language teacher, when they're the only person in their department, and sometimes the only Chinese teacher in their district, or um, something like that, or they're traveling between three sites, how do they form community? And so I think that idea of really using social media as a powerful tool to connect, and I've had um, some former students use that to connect with their classrooms. I've had others um, use it and participate regularly in Twitter chats with other professionals, but I think it's just a really nice way of them understanding that we are not just a classroom. And that it's funny because I had a student ask, well, why are we on Twitter and Beachboard? Like, can't we just pick one? And I'm like, oh, well, they're actually used for different purposes, right? So things that are internal to our community we use Beachboard for, but things that we really want kind of share with the world and broadcast and let them know or let others outside in on our world, we use Twitter for. And I think it's really, again, about being explicit about the different communities that we all are a part of. And I think that's a really cool thing about social media. That's why I love it so much. You know, I want to go back to, um, to, to something that Robin said that I don't want to be lost in this, which is, um, Robin, you said something that I don't think a lot of people think about, which is if they're, if they're not feeling a part of that space, 
you don't blame it on them. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, you the first thing you you just said was, Am I is my curriculum getting in the way or my activities in the way or my structures getting in the way? And I think that's a really different way to think about education then. Um, why isn't that student paying attention or why don't they feel a part of it? Well, I guess I really like to think about it in terms of what I can do. I like to feel um, like I have choices. And I, it's not to say that once in a while you don't have a student who's just checked out for reasons of her own or his own. That's, that's a thing. But I can't do a lot about that besides uh, maybe speed things up, slow things down, talk to some, you know, there's lots of moves I can make. I like to think about the things I can do rather than lament the things I can't do anything about. And so I guess that's my focus, is, is how can I do a little something? Plus, I find it fascinating to make some changes or, or you know, tweak our lesson plan or whatever. So I, I find it really enjoyable to think about how I can constantly improve what I'm doing or make it more applicable. And a lot of times, I'll just ask the students, you know, how should we change this? In fact, this morning I asked them, what should I say on this thing I'm doing tonight? You know, I mean, we, did, we just talked a lot about what, what I've shared so far, but I don't like to put back myself, I guess, into a corner where I don't have any choices to make as a professional. I like to constantly think about what I can do and, and how I can make things better. Um, Alicia, can you can you talk a little bit about the different like so what I one of the things I don't know about what six year olds can do <laughs> <laughs> there's many things my children are old now so <laughs> <laughs> um, is is the so the different configurations like do they give feedback yeah. on writing like do they do, give feedback on writing do the six year olds give feedback on writing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, What's that look like? Okay, so in my room, <laughs> I know, right? Like, oh, boy, here we go. Um, in my room, I have a document camera, which I never use to show documents. I, I have it turned on like a video camera on my kids, you know, and um, we put on a TV show, and um, they read their writing. It's called this, and they named this, and this is so funny to me, Super Golden Rockstar Reader News. Yeah. I'm not even joking. And um, anyway, so they they read their piece of writing, and then they can take questions about it from the kids who are seated on the carpet in our group space, or um, the kids can give comments and things. And I act as a note taker because um, that's a little beyond their capacity. But yeah, and then um, we do we do special applause and things for them. But yeah, that's a we're about to get into that. Um, really heavily, and that's a part of our daily routine is is them sharing out what they've written and what they're working on, and getting feedback from from their friends. So, how do you set up the expectation, or do you even need to do it much because you've already kind of created this community? What? How do you set up like attending to each other, reading, or those kinds of things? And what's the title of it again? <laughs> it's Super Golden Rockstar Reader News. <laughs> And and it comes from uh, okay. So a lot of the behaviors are already established. Like they've already said in their social contract that they want they want people to listen attentively. And we've already talked about what does that look like, and, and that looks like engaging and asking questions and giving compliments and things like that. So after they read, then they know there's an opportunity to ask questions if they need clarification, 
and to give compliments and um, and I got this from Writing Project, Northern California Writing Project. So thank you very much. Um, they're they're looking for the golden lines, and so um, my kids, when when the other kid is reading, like whoever's reading on the TV show, the other kids will be sitting on the carpet and they're going like this, which is which is G in sign language. So every time they're flashing me this sign, I'm, I'm furiously writing down golden lines that we're going to hang in our classroom for the rest of the year. So it's it goes back to um, what Bettina was saying about always always assuming the best and and um, creating a classroom where they assume the best about each other and they look for that. Yeah, I love the idea of, of positive intent. I, I that mm -hmm. Bettina shared you. That's a great way to think about it. I mean, right? I, I call, I just say, a little trust and love, man. We got a little trust and love here. Like, no, you wouldn't do that because that would be rude. Like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird to do that. You know, a little trust and love is a good thing. Um, let's, you know, we got a little bit of time left here. I think it'd be good to hear from all of you. Like, if you were going to do, maybe, you know, if you even think about kind of a new teacher audience versus a veteran teacher audience, like, some, you know, if you were going to tell them, like, these key things, and this is hard, these kind of key things that would be important to consider if you're going to create a space where they feel invested in each other. Um, and Robin already talked about it in terms of, and I agree with her, that sometimes you build community through something being so hard, I need everybody else to do it with me. Like, good learning is right at the edge of your ability, so I need ya on this wall with me. Um, but maybe you could all kind of weigh in on what would be the like, okay, attend to these things. Um, Robin, do you mind starting us off with that? Yeah, that's fine. I think the most important thing to consider when you're designing a classroom space or your curriculum or a lesson planner or an activity of any kind is how do you think people learn? What's your conceptualization of knowledge? You know, do you think that people learn by listening? Or and sitting quietly, or do you think people learn best by doing and feeling agency in that doing or making? And I personally have to design a space because I believe in the conceptualization of knowledge as something that people make and build and construct. So I want them making and building and constructing and in a relationship almost constantly. It's not that they don't ever have time to reflect, they do. That's a necessary piece of it too, but my, my classroom is a physical representation of how I think learning works. And so I think for new teachers, you might sit with that and think back to an amazing learning experience of your own and what were the components of it, what made it so amazing, and then try to build a space that allows students to do those types of things. I guess I can go next. Um, I think the main principle that I really would consider when I'm thinking about designing a community of kindness or designing a classroom community is, um, is to not be afraid to invest of yourself in the community. Um, because I think that fear holds us back in a lot of the relationships we have in the world, right? We always want to be seen as a certain thing. And that's actually the danger of social media, right? That we only put one part of ourselves forward. But I think that community, you know, Kim, when you said trust and love, you know, I think community is really based around trust. And it's based around you get in, you get out what you put in. You know, and if you are willing to take risks, if you are willing to 
put yourself out there as a model for students, then they feel more willing to be a part of that community as well. And I think that that really applies to both new teachers and veteran teachers because, you know, every single semester it's hard. Every single semester, I be, the night before classes, I'm like, what if this fails this time? What if they don't like me? Like, I, I've read their autobiographies. They're really, like, amazing people. Like, what if they think I'm totally lame? But I have to get out there and take the risk and be the model. And, you know, my style doesn't work for everybody. But um, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. And, and I think I am constantly a work in progress. And that vulnerability that I have with students um, actually helps me to be a better teacher and helps us to have a better community. So I, I just really think that not being afraid to invest is the principle that I kind of use to guide my community building. So I asked my students what I should say tonight because like Robin, I was a little bit nervous. <laughs> and um, one of my little boys just said, just remind them, Mrs. McCauley, that love is the best thing in the world. and. Um, you know, it, sound, it sounds trite, but, you know, from the mouth of a six-year-old, he, he really means it. And, and I think that's, that's the thing I would say to veteran teachers and new teachers alike is that putting all this time in, in the beginning of the year is so worth it. It's so worth it to let your students know that you love and care for them and that you love and care for their families um, because my students, my students will just do daring and brave things all year long because that's already been established. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of teachers come to me and they say, but what about the curriculum? What about this? And I say, that will come. That will come and they will they'll knock your socks off. They'll, they'll blow your doors away by what they will do if they know that they're valued and loved and cared for. So um, love is the best thing in the world. That's awesome, and I also and I think that's just as true for college students and everybody. Right? There's a little bit of I will do things if I feel safe here. I will take risks if I feel like I'm in good shape. Um, it's so funny you said nerves. I'm like you guys are amazing. I'm like <laughs> my rock star. <laughs> I just adore y'all. Um, thanks so much for a great conversation. Um, we're going to have to run out of time here, so we're going to wrap up kind of this first webinar, um, which makes me excited for the rest of them, you know, for the rest of September, thinking about back to school. Um, you, can, can still, you can still continue the conversation on Twitter. It can go on for, which is nice, forever. Um, use it, you know, I still like the Justin Timberlake hashtag. Maybe I'll just post that clip, not safe for work, that clip, connected learning or um, B2S for back to school. And then there'll be um, a full video recording. There's an archive that people can watch that you can send to your families for them to watch on connected learning um, TV. And then you can share this with your networks. I get the connected learning email newsletter that tells me when things are coming up, which is really helpful. Um, I did want to give a shout out for next Tuesday. Um, I'm really stoked. We're going to be talking to some people around 3.30, um, our time, Pacific time, about um, there's a big push for student learning outcomes, and you're supposed to know those ahead of time. And that's actually troubling to me, that you're, you're supposed to know those ahead of time. And so we want to think through how learning outcomes can be emergent and how you can um, think about what students are curious about um, in a day-to-day -day kind of fashion. So. Yeah, that's our plan for next Tuesday. So thanks so much, everybody, for a great Thank you. Yeah. Have Thank a you. Evening. <laughs>
<laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>